0: Walked up to you and asked if I wanted to dance. I'm the type of guy. Going to the chapel and. Gonna get married, go into the chapel, and gonna get married. He really loves you, and gonna get married. Oh, to the chapel of love. Spring is here, whoa. Skies and blue. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Birds are singing. If they knew. Today's the day. I say I do. And I'll never be lonely anymore. Because we're going to the chapel and I. Gonna get married, goin' to the chapel, and gonna get married, dearly really loving, and gonna get married, going to the chapel of love, yeah, 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 goin' to the chapel.
1: Of love. All right. Hi, folks. I know it's a little late, but this leak has been very busy. But I did not want to let the week end without doing what I said I would do last goddamn week. What we goddamn came here to motherfucking do, which is go through this here book First class passengers on a sinking ship by the rate, Richard Lachman, RIP, to a real one. And so I said, I don't care if it's a Saturday. We got to do it before the week is out, or else I will have broken my vow, and I would never want to do such a thing. So uh, we do the first chapter for this, the intro and the first chapter, uh, and it's really a lot of throat clearing for the book in general. I've noticed this with other Lachman books I've read that he really likes to lay out what he's going to do before he starts doing it. Uh, so the first chapter is really him laying out the uh, premise for the rest of the book. So we can use this chat here to go over what that premise really is. Uh, and what it boils down to is. Latchman identifies uh, modern capitalist hege- he- hegemons, uh, and specifically notes that there are in the modern early and modern era there are uh, a number of states that vie for hegemonic power: Habsburg Spain, uh, Louis uh, the Fourteenth France, uh, but then of course the Dutch, Great Britain, and the United States. Uh, and Spain, the Habsburgs, and uh, the French never managed to achieve any kind of hegemony, uh, but we do get this, uh, this unbroken, really, line of, of capitalist hegemonies that move geographically from Amsterdam to London to New York slash uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, and what has happened with all of them is the internal contradictions bring them down. Uh that is uh the the essence of, of Lachman's thesis here. His his specific uh fixation is this concept of elite conflict that he is uh he talked about in other books and which he poses as sort of a I don't know if he would necessarily say it's uh uh it is a challenge to the Marxist notion of class conflict, uh because Lachman uses this uh concept of elites rather than ruling class uh, or, or, you know, capitalist class or whatever. He says that the elite is sort of uh, economically heterogeneous, like its relationship to means of production is not fixed across an elite category. Uh, You have a bunch of different elites gathered around different economic spoils, basically. And I mean, I don't know if that's contra Marxism or an elaboration and and a more specific refinement of it. I don't know. Uh, It certainly is, to my mind, having studied the early modern era he's talking about, uh, very much uh, in accordance with my view of it, my view of the moment. Capitalism is unleashed on the world not through any design by any power or any class, but through the jockeying of different elites within a broader ruling structure. And... So for Lachman, three of these states who start fighting it out in the early modern period, starting with the Spanish Habsburgs, uh, the first state to really be able to vie for hegemonic power in the European context, uh, they 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 don't do it. They fumble the bag. They decline post, especially after this uh, the loss of Portugal and the the end of the Thirty Years War. Uh, they, they decline. Their decline is pretty much terminal at that point, and, and coincides with the rise of France, which also makes a play. For hegemony, fails to get there either. Loses theirs at the in, in the thirty in the Seven Years War. Seven Years War would ends the chance of France to have uh, a hegemony over what is emerging now as like a European capitalist world system that is now interacting with all these other parts of the world uh, to create colonies and to extract resources to feed. Uh, markets in Europe. Now, what do we mean by hegemony? Because, like, why do we say Spain and France failed, but the Dutch, the British, and America succeeded? It's because uh, to be a hegemon is not simply to be first among equals within a competitive framework. Uh, It is to be the state that basically writes the rule book that everyone else has to follow. Uh, And Spain and France never pulled that off. The Dutch established, really, the global rulebook uh, and then turned over management of it to uh, the British, who handed it over to us. So you are seeing this like global system sustain itself essentially by changing hosts, right? But that's not uh, Latchman's focus. Latchman is focusing on the specific polities that these things pass through. Because capitalism did not end with the fall of the Dutch uh, Empire or the decline of the Dutch Empire. Far from it, it expanded. But it left the Dutch in a situation of specific decline. They were no longer in the Netherlands writing the rules. They now had to uh, compete with everybody else uh, with rules that were being decided in London and not in Amsterdam. And then eventually... Even though England was able to sustain a hegemony longer than uh, any previous uh, 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 competitor, uh, attempter to grab it, they too fell and experienced. Even though the country wasn't destroyed, uh, experienced a decline in influence and power and ability to write the real rule book. And now we are in the United States uh, in a situation where our Hegemonic position is in decline. That's the whole premise that Latchman starts with, is the U.S. is in in decline because its state capacity can no longer be wielded by anybody. And I, I agree with that. And so he starts from that premise and says, okay, so if we're falling, if we're failing as a hegemon, why did previous hegemonies fail? And so the first chapter, he kind of looks through all the reasons that hegemonies fail, that there is uh, an undermining of a cohesive imperial colonial project. And uh, what he identifies is uh, two significant threats. One is if uh, the colonial elites that emerge to manage the periphery of the empire are able to assert independent autonomous influence over the metropole Uh, And when that happens, you have deep destabilization. The other thing that happens is when you have uh, uh, intense elite competition within the Metropole. A a lot of this seems inspired by, like, John Nash's insights into uh, game theory and, uh, like, competitive and cooperative frameworks. Like, if you have an elite who can all sort of agree that there is a broader project to carry out, they can actually do an effective job of asserting power globally and, and determining... Uh, economic and military conditions for other powers. But as soon as those uh, forces start pushing against one another, uh, the state capacity, the thing that this stuff is all supposed to theoretically be benefiting, suffers. So with Spain, uh, they were basically fucked because There was never a. There was a deep uh, dissension within the imperial powers at the center of the uh, uh, empire, and uh, in northern or in the in the in the equatorial basis uh, for Spanish rule, you had vastly rich uh, existing social structures that colonial authorities could. Uh, leverage to create independent bases of economic and military power. Because the the weak Habsburg state at that point has no capacity, technologically or administratively, to really administer those territories. They're at the mercy, really, of their governors from the beginning. At least in that uh, strata, as he points out, as Lashman points out. This is all, you don't get to pick. If you were a conquistador or a, a Spanish administrator who ends up in the cone... The Southern Cone, Argentina, Chile, where there's very there are many fewer natives who could be subordinated to labor. There's uh, much less dense commercial networks and uh, and economies. You are essentially a, a glorified civil servant. You're a functionary, totally at the mercy of uh, of the state that you serve. and you have that pulling against spanish uh power and then you have the fact that internally spain is rife with these elite conflicts that are broken that are essentially regional spain attempts to centralize authority of the uh, iberian peninsula but by the 1640s uh, the pressure of funding the 30 years war and the war against the dutch that it was connected to it, it causes revolts that have been in many cases uh uh organized and funded and and pushed along by France that sees both uh, Catalonia and Portugal break away. Uh, and Spain is basically defined at both poles by this pulling away. Uh, now, France... They who come next, uh, there is some of that in the French colonial holdings, uh, although less uh, independent assertion. Although the richest colony, Haiti, Saint-Among, uh, with its incredibly wealthy uh, sugar uh, slave plant planter elite, is definitely able to, to create its own uh, pole of power uh, and influence. Uh, but... In, Spain, in France itself, uh, uh, noble aristocratic land-owning power is just far too deeply entrenched. It takes the fucking French Revolution to kind of pull those roots out. And that is what held it back and led it to its inevitable defeat by Britain in the Seven Years' War. And in between, and then, of course, so those guys are trying and failing. Who's succeeding? Places where those sort of asymmetries don't don't occur. Now, of course, you might say, well, what about the British and the United States? Yeah, correct. The United States is, does break away, but that's just it. Instead of sticking around to undermine elite uh, cooperation in the metropole, it eliminates uh, Amer- uh American colonial politics from British politics. It it cuts the Gordian knot. And as British control of England, or of North America, is loosening, is the exact moment that their grip on the Indian South Continent, subcontinent, is increasing. And that colonial empire is not a settler colonial project. It does not create independent elites. It creates uh, essentially a cadre of civil servants who are moved around and who never develop uh, like durable local power bases while they're you know managing these, these, uh, this, this array of satrapies and, and sultanates that make up uh, the subcontinent. So then how do they fail, though? If they, if, So if some succeed because they're able to hold off uh, that accumulation of crisis and elite competition within the periphery and, inter- and in the metropole, what, what, what happens to bring them down? And uh, Lachman's answer, and we'll see how he sketches it out in the rest of the book, is, it is institutional. Uh, that, that the states that are able to create durable institutions to manage elite conflict— uh, can sustain hegemony. But, creating hegemony increases the uh, pressure within these, uh, you can only ever call them truces between elites. There's never a full path. There's always veiled competition that breaches itself when conditions change. And the condition of asserting hegemony uh, increases the uh, competition within metropolitan elites over the spoils, essentially, of a hegemony. And when that happens, and there's no institutions to check it, or institutions have been subverted over time to allow for conflict to overcome cooperation, when that happens, all of the effort that used to be synthesized towards The communal end of the hegemony is now privatized towards the short-term end of the specific, narrow, material advancement of the fragments of the elite. And this is why I say this is Nashian, because it's like, if you guys are all competing, you will undermine one another. So that's the first chapter. Like I said, kind of like lays the groundwork. Uh, And then the next chapter is going to be about the specific way that military power was leveraged to sustain uh, colonial uh, colonial projects that could compete for hegemony. And the answer is, of course, this is a military project, first and foremost, that begins with the military revolution. That coincides with of the of the 1500s. That coincides with the conquest of uh, of the New Continents at the same time. So they're they're going to talk about like how how military power creates these new conditions. That's the second chapter, and we'll read the second chapter next week. But I think also. Might do the third chapter too, which is going to examine Spain and France from the perspective of like military colonial projects that were unable to uh, develop the sort of institutional complexity that could manage um, growth and expansion rather than end up buckling under the strain caused by uh, birth. But it'll be interesting to to read this because like at a certain level I find that that begs the question with the uh, to say, you know, institutions. It's like, well, okay. Like, well, what allows one, uh institutions to emerge in one context and and not another? It's not people deciding, "Hey, let's get some institutions." It's never that's never the answer. They emerge out of people dealing with crises and emerge out of Uh, contingency, and then are sort of solidified by practical use over time. Use not to everyone, of course, but to specific regimes of elites. So next week we'll talk about how states like France and Spain were able to build Pretty much, I mean, unprecedented global machines of, of uh, economic activity at a level that kind of had never been seen before, obviously, due to the higher level of technological complexity and all that that had been uh, established over time. But we're unable to take the next
0: step. But uh,
1: it is interesting to take Lachman's assumption uh, that the U.S. is in hegemonic decline, with the insight that we got from the making of global capitalism, which is that the American state structure is inextricable from the maintenance and uh, of global capitalism; that there is no new host to take the spirit of capitalism from to to find a new headquarters uh, Lashman says like uh, that because of decline uh, America's decline we know that the era of European hegemony is over because there is no European power that could take uh, headquarters or Europe as a whole they're not they're no more they're less viable than us significantly so so then who takes the who takes the the parasite who holds the slug in its brain? The obvious answer is China, of course, but, I mean, if that happens, are, are we seeing a continuation or the beginning of a dramatic transformation? That I don't know. And I don't think we're going to get much in this, but maybe we'll read something about China next. Maybe that makes sense. To read. So give, give me, everybody who's read a good China book, that might be a good idea. Logical next step after reading this. Because I honestly don't know what, I mean, obviously Panitch is dead, R.I.P., but uh, I don't know what Sam Gindin, uh thinks about the notion that America is declining as a hegemon. Because that does mean in a me- meaningful sense then that capitalism as a governing structure is in decline. And is there really any evidence of that? I don't think so. It's uh, the, t- the uh, Capitalism's grip is only tightening by the day. But, uh, who knows? I believe it was a, uh, is it a Chinese proverb? May you live in interesting times? No, it's a curse, right? The curse is, may you live in interesting times. And if that's the case, we sure as hell have been cursed. Yeah I think one thing that uh that historical analysis uh that limits its ability to really allow you to understand this current moment you know it it can get you a lot of places but there's a big gap and it's that when you uh, analyze past structures events people it's in a assumed uh a relatively assumed overwhelming, like, homeostatic relationship between, you know, the natural world and human events. Like, you will talk about climate change and how it causes huge crises and undermines states and destroys empires. But that is with an assumption of an underlying um, predictability. Like, these these things that happen are all within a certain band that is acceptable, and that essentially holds up a greater stability. But the current moment, I think, is defined by one where that can't be assumed. And it really is when you make that assumption. It's where you clamp off to start investigating, where you decide to just assume continued stability given current conditions. That's going to give you your answer, really and none of us know where to do that because we are all just uh we're all just looking at the sky and waiting to feel our knee twinge you know like a like an old guy sitting in front of a, a soda fountain or something but just as a, on on first gloss i have to say that I very much vibe with uh Lachman's vision of uh of progressively uh narcissistic elites like not in the sense of personality wise just uh self-fixated uh kind of acting using the, the, the machinery that they have access to, but acting not in a, towards a consensus goal with others, other elites, but towards their specific narrow survival. It's everybody pulling away. It's all man for himself. And that's why the fixations of the rich now are all about privatized spaces. They are seceding. I mean, the, the, the dumber, more... Delusional ones might think they're going to Mars or something. The more realistic ones might be imagining some sort of uh, subterranean luxury experience. And honestly, like the most uh, optimistic, the ones who don't think we're going to have to go to space or go underground, who thinks that we can't fix this stuff to a point of like stability their fantasies are things like fucking neom which are just which is essentially to say an archipelago of of deterritorialized non-geographic luxury space that you could have access to if you are a participant in its economy and if you aren't don't good luck So next week, we'll do the next two chapters, which will give us a little more to talk about than this week. But, you know, I I wanted to just start with one before I knew what to expect. Mm I would like, yeah, subterranean communism. Possible? Maybe that's what it would be. It would be like, uh, in in the air-conditioned, like, arcologies of the wealthy on, on on the planet's surface, you have just what we have now, but worse, you know? The same sliding scale where... It feels like it's the same, but everything is changing around you and getting worse until one day you stop and look backward and you're horrified at how much you've allowed to uh, become normal. Uh, that process will just be continuing. Uh, and then, like, real experiments in human, human sociality and, and religion and uh, community are going to be carried out underground. This is interesting. Why was Calvin more influential than Luther in Protestantism? I mean, I agree with the premise that he was Luther. You can't have you cannot have the Reformation without Luther, but I don't know if you can have Protestantism as we understand it without Calvin, uh, because Calvin was the the voice of the of the bourgeois mind, you know, like. Luther was just uh, this this country rustic trying to reaffirm, you know, his uh, his faith and square it with the questions that he just couldn't stop come popping up in his head. But you know, it, the life experience, the thing, the people who who took that and ran with it were people who were living much more alienated lives in urban areas where they were forced to treat each other as strangers where they were forced to leave their christian love in at their at inside their homes if they wanted to survive in this this new uh atomized social space and how are they to to manage that how are they to manage that relationship and it was Luke calvin who was able to formulate a uh a intellectual catechism, taking all of the stuff that you used to have to ritualize, taking all of the stuff that so efficiently required a giant fucking uh, cathedral and 50,000 fucking friars and monks running around and, and parish illiterate parish priests doing mass all day and reliquaries of saints' bones, all this stuff that you needed to encounter to affirm your... Belief in like a a supernatural deity that w- that 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 uh you have a that understands you and recognizes you that is can now all be contained in a series of intellectual catechisms in a, in, in a constant ceaseless agitation of the mind towards and around the question of salvation. Now, the medieval subjects didn't need that for the most part. They were standing with their head behind a fucking cow all day. Last thing they needed was fucking having to worry about going to hell in addition to that. For the love of God, let a man drink his mead, uh, run around with his pants off, sin, but also recognize the church and carry out its rituals and then be saved. What a deal. That's no solace to the city dweller, it's no solace to the burger, it's no solace to the bourgeois. Because they have their days spent in combat, essentially with one another. Even if you're an artisan, you have still have a uh, 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 if you're a successful artisan, you've got a warehouse of of journeymen and apprentices who you are exploiting. If you're selling your wares, you have other people who are buying them, who you are in a competitive uh, race for dollars with. You are lending and owing money at interest. For fuck's sake! Of course, you're going to worry about going to fucking hell. And what Calvin gave you is a way to. Keep that thought not, not to banish the fear of hell. Because as we see from the fucking Calvinists, when, you, when we see what happens with the Puritans, there is no way in hell you can say that these people are calmed by, by uh, their, their, their faith in God's grace and love. They're racked by terror at the thought of uh, going to hell. And that is what psychologically pushes them through their little fucking rat maze. But it's not because Protestantism makes capitalism. It's because capitalism makes people act a way that tears them away from everything they knew and thought they understood about the world and calls up a demand that is socially met through technology and through the fucking... the, the, the market incentives created by it. It accumulates answers to the questions that allow people to live. And when Protestantism emerges... Luke, Calvin's one guy, another guy, uh, Thomas Munster. Or how about John of Leyden and the Anabaptists? That's another thing to take from, from Luther's uh, Creed de against the church. That's another direction to take Christianity. But that is one that cannot be stabilized within a capitalist or pre-capitalist, late feudal, whatever you want to call it, early modern world. The peasants don't have the social mobilization or self-consciousness or technology to mobilize themselves, and they are crushed in turn. So if you want to live, and you got to live in a city, which more and more people have to do, then, my God, you're going to have to develop a personal relationship with Christ, which means thinking every day of your life, is he mad at me? And so that's why Calvin is the most important of the of the thinkers of the um, Reformation, because Luther spoke in you know public uh, in populist language in vernacular language, and in so was in so far was sort of uh, arrested in its development towards a totally intellectualized Christianity. Because remember, for Luther. There were certain things that he couldn't explain rationally, but he just felt and knew were true, like the presence of a true a true presence in the Eucharist. So adult, uh, the, the Eucharist, communion, not in the Bible, just like all the other sacraments that Luther condemned, but he couldn't throw that one away. He couldn't get rid of that one. Now, he couldn't get rid of infant baptism, because if he got rid of infant baptism, uh, Frederick the Wise, his patron, would have cut his head off. Or drown him in a little river if you wanted to be ironic. Because infant baptism was the covenant between the person, the mere human, and the society of orders that it was brought into. The Anabaptists had to be hunted down and killed because they denied sovereignty. They said that you get to choose your sovereign. Uh uh-uh. uh. So Luther had couldn't go anywhere on that one. He had to leave that one be. But he stuck on the Eucharist and fought Zwingli in Switzerland at a time when you would think that the most important thing in the world would be solidarity, Protestant solidarity against the reacting Catholic Church. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't go along with Zwingli, even though Zwingli artfully pointed out all your arguments about the other sacraments also apply to uh, the Eucharist. And Luther's response was, there is a sense, there is a feeling in the Eucharist, there is a presence. It is, It cannot be perhaps put into words, but it is felt by me, and therefore by all, because that was how Luther's mind worked. And so he had to defend it. He had to defend true presence in the Eucharist. Those, uh, those dissipated, increasingly abstracted uh, Genevites and, and, uh, and Huguenots and Dutch, uh, they were moved by the stone logic and reason of the Calvinist uh, rejoinder. Because they've never felt anything in the Eucharist. Nothing but an absence, if they've ever felt anything. So get rid of it. Get it out of my sight so that I am not reminded by, reminded daily of the hollowness of this. And also, it fulfills the job of creating a fully democratized church because you need a fucking priest to administer a fucking uh, Eucharist. You need somebody with a, with some sort of hierarchical relationship, and they wanted to get rid of that. And you could say that that is that that is admirable, you know. But what are you replacing it with? You're replacing it with just this panopticon of judgment. A constant sense of one's own sin, one's own vulnerability to being observed
0: sinning and judged sinning.
1: Yeah, the Scots go crazy for Calvinism as a way to uh, resist uh, the English church. Now, of course, in Ireland, it goes the exact opposite direction because it was the English who were Protestant and tried to assert Protestantism, that they all cleaved completely to their Rome-appointed Catholic hierarchy. But by this time, like, um, you know, they're already sending Scots to the Pale of Settlement in Ireland before that, you know, so... So when Scotland gets, uh, when England gets, when England gets uh, Anglicanism and then tries to impose it on Scotland, uh, it makes sense that they just decide to just run completely around the corner and say, all right, fine, sure, no more Catholicism, but also uh, no more poncy English fucking uh, guys in robes telling us anything. We'll throw a fucking stool at you. You know, one thing I always find funny is that the uh the riot uh over the pews that's kind of kicked off the bishop's war and was really kind of the first act of the uh British English Civil War sort of the uh, defenestration of Prague of the English Civil War uh which was a riot of of these women it was it was it was pretty much entirely women uh at a church service in I believe Edinburgh where the uh Laudian Episcopacy had put in uh, church pews to replace the table that they had used to sit at and uh, the ladies went ham and started throwing the, the stools, started throwing uh, the tables around but they were all all the people who had do the rioting were actually the maids and servants of uh, more prominent Scottish Calvinist families who wanted to protest, the imposition of the Laudian uh, prayer book and 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 the the new more formal religious uh, rituals, and just sent their servants to do it. They're just like, hey, you know, can you go pick me up uh, some bread and a uh, some mead, perhaps, and then you know just go chuck a stool at the fucking uh, archbishop's head. Do I think there's a path to Scottish independence? My God, there's a chance the United Kingdom might be gone in ten years, and I honestly think a big reason it might happen is because England wants it too. At the level of the political, the political, the English political like center of gravity, they would love to get rid of these fucking uh, to get rid of uh, Northern Ireland, to get rid of Scotland. They would be like thank you. They just want to sulk in their tent. They want to they want to grieve their lost empire in peace. But I mean, you have a real a real possibility of Sinn Fein government in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland within the next 4 years. Now, the Scottish, I don't know exactly what their leverage really is to demand another referendum since they blew their shot, but I don't know. I could see maybe them doing the Catalan thing and conducting an unauthorized referendum just as a uh, a gambit, basically, just maybe uh, begin a negotiated process. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe things get to a point where one faction of the fucking Tories or something has to make a deal, just to for short-term survival that like sacrifices the long-term interests of the empire. That certainly sounds about right. Remember when David Cameron agreed to a fucking Brexit vote just to calm down the UKIP people and prevent bleeding from the Conservative Party, and then it fucking won, blew up his entire fucking. Shot his entire game his entire uh pol- the entire like unified bipartisan uh consensus of like political economy for the 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 great Britain, and they've been literally scrambling ever since in that context you could really see uh Scotland maybe trying to leverage something but I don't know. I mean that oil is pretty pretty expensive right now, right? That makes those those uh, uh those derricks out in the North Sea look really tempting as a as a revenue source to turn you into like a like a little mini Norway. And yeah, England was the only part of the United Kingdom where Brexit secured a majority of votes. So it's like, Brexit, cutting off from, from the rest of Europe, is just stage one in this process of, of, of never-ending grief. Because that's the problem. If you're a fucking... Uh, if, you're a, if you're one of these last remaining Anglo-American empires, your citizens, for the most part, they can afford to not go through the Kubler-Ross cycle of grief. They can just sit at anger... And live there forever. Oh, Wales too, okay. Which is basically half-Englishmen at this point, right? Haven't they been colonizing Wales for the past 20 years? I would honestly like to see a breakdown of the vote in Wales between like relatively recent English emigres and native Welsh. I would be willing to bet that Brexit failed among the natively Welsh Certainly among Welsh speakers, I would be willing to put a bet. If anyone can uh, correct me, anyone has this data, one way or the other, I will read it out. Let me know. Uh, Brazil, I th- I mean, if there's an election, Luna, will, Luna Lula will win it. Uh, there is a the question of whether Bolsonaro is going to try some sort of Coup, either before the election or after the uh, denying the results, I my sense though is that Bolsonaro does not have the buy-in uh, any more than Trump did among the institutional players in Brazil uh, to get that to actually go off. Like Lula has already proven that he is somebody that power structure can work with. They did; they made a lot of money together. Meanwhile, Bolsonaro, even though you know he's a creature of the right, has been. Not great and has actually clashed significantly with like key power players, including the fucking military, which you would imagine would be his most important base of support. So that makes me suspect that either he is he bitches out and never actually does anything, uh, maybe he like tries a Trump like pseudo deal that like maybe leads to some violence, uh, or if he does go for it, he gets he gets uh owned. I don't know. At this point, who knows, man. Maybe it only takes a couple of generals to just get the wind in their sails and say, fuck it, let's be legends, and then everybody else just falls in into, the into line. Hard to tell anymore. And yeah, of course, like, U.S. support would be key in either case, and I just don't see the U.S. for the same reasons as the... Uh, institutional players in Brazil. I don't see them deciding that it's worth it to support him over Lula. Because again, Lula worked with the United States pretty well.
0: Why did Obama help them
1: do Lava Jato? I think because see here's I think where people kind of get mistaken. You look at something like that. You look at the way the US undermined Dilma with the Lava Jato support and you go, "Ah, there there was this there was something about the the labor party government in Brazil that had to go, right? That the US decided we're putting a hit out on, on Dilma." And I think the more realistic understanding of that is that it is in the US's interests everywhere to promote a fake bipartisan, fake non-political uh, politics of corruption and politics of anti-corruption, I should say. That plays to America's power in every country. It always works for the United States. Maybe you might have some short-term problem, uh, like, but in the general, everything works out fine. It's worked out fine for the U.S. It's perfect. It, it is a way to go to war with any residual, socially-based politics that exist in a country. Because corruption, what we call corruption, is how social structures are able to persist in the face of capitalist atomization. In the 19th century, in, 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 in New York, the Tammany Hall machine provided real benefits to the poorest people in New York, or the poorest white people in New York, anyway. They got Christmas gooses, they got jobs, they got jobs as cops and as fire, and, and as, um, garbage men and as civil servants in exchange for votes, of course. It is a, and of course, the guys at the top skimmed money for themselves, but it actually did deliver for people at a time when laissez-faire uh, gold standard British capitalism was murdering people was pulling people into these cities and grinding them up into fucking dust. And the entire rest of the state apparatus in the U.S. or in England was directed towards making that happen. And these Mm -hmm. corruption networks were things you could participate in as an incredibly vulnerable proletarian and shield yourself from the worst effects of it. Now, that's not all corruption is. Corruption is also bad, and corruption also undergirds capitalism. Remember, we're talking in dialectical terms here, like buying off the working class with corruption is a key way to maintain the legitimacy of your fake democracy. But it has this uh, social function. And that means that any meaningfully social politics in any country that is being uh, totally satrapized and dominated by global capitalism, directed from the United States, basically as, as a as a uh, function of United States foreign policy. Its operations will be corrupt by the, the by the terms set in Washington D.C., where corruption, real corruption, has been legalized. Where the working, where the ruling class buying the state is just the function of the state that we have all normalized and accepted. So we get to define corruption, and then apply that definition to every country on earth, and use it as a justification for firing prosecutors and denying aid money, and destroying political enemies of the pro-American comprador faction. In that country's politics, so the U.S. isn't going to make an exception for Dilma just because the labor, the worker the Workers Party of Brazil plays ball. If she falls, big deal. If she stays, big deal. We're maintaining our hand at the tiller. And I think that is that's probably the number one problem I see with people trying to apply, you know, deep political lenses to things, is you assume that every outcome that is to the benefit of capital, the American empire, however you want to define it, was was specifically engineered by it. No. The whole point of having hegemony is that however the ball falls, you get to fucking pick up the goddamn rebound. So, yeah, knock over Lula. Overthrow the, working, the, work, the Workers' Party uh, government in Brazil. Bring in this ravening maniac, Bolsonaro. It works. It's great. It doesn't happen, though, and Lula just sort of has to, like, kick it off. Fine. One way or another, you have put the American power in there. You've made them have to contend with it. And the thing is, is that it succeeded because that's how powerful the United States is. And how, and how tenuous any broadly left power structure is in the current moment. They're all built out of fucking chicken wire. They can f- collapse at a gust of wind because every fucking headwind is against them. They're essentially squatting over like these extinct dynamics that had created these political and social formations, but was not sustaining them anymore. It's not sustaining them anywhere. They're, they're dissolving. And that is what we see when good old fashioned American uh, meddling, when good old fashioned American concern trolling over corruption manages to knock over this incredibly powerful previously dominant political uh, force in Brazil, holy shit, maybe all this shit is really made out of spun fucking sugar. And that's why, like, we have these new pink wave governments, the second pink wave in Latin America, and all of them are on tremendously thin social basis. Most of them do not even have uh, anywhere near a majority in their parliaments. They're They're governing, basically, as isolated executives. That's incredibly unstable, and they're going to get knocked over, and the U.S. will probably have some hand that you could point to to see, uh, to see helping lead to it. But at the same time, you will see that every, anywhere at any moment. I still think the specific proximate causes don't need to be fucking manipulated. So why bother? If you're going to catch the rebound, no matter how which way it drops, you don't need to tend. Yeah, and like you look at Lula coming back, you know, he's got, once again, he's got to do this thing where they got their vice presidential nominee is just a, a, a slug. This this reactionary turd holding on to one of these like little regional uh power brokerage firms that disguise themselves as political parties that Brazil has. And the reason Brazil has that is this is a legacy of the dictatorship. Like all the years where civil social orders are built out of emerging capitalism when capitalism really starts to like Industrialize and urbanize and secularize and liberalize a population, which always happens at some point, and which for most of Latin America happened in the 20th century. A big portion of the time, where other states are, you know, developing these civil institutions to channel this ferment, it's decapitated. There's no fucking political process, it's completely arrested. So there can be no national political ideologies or, or solidarities, uh, identities, social beings. There can only be the localized, the particulars and local networks, uh, excuse me, of patronage, corruption. I was talking about a social form of power. Cor- and, and yes, reactionary because it is, uh, not connected to, uh, a class as such. But rather composed of members of different classes, and then the work—the Workers Party—eventually does create like a national conception of class. And you do now have, you know, there is a broad working class support for the Labor Party, the Working Party, Workers Party, that has, of course, been undermined by the spectacleization of politics recently, and the failure of the the Workers Party to be able to actually deliver on a lot of their promises as. Uh, as the money ran out, basically, as as global austerity started to choke things off. And so, but even that, like, working class political identity is not sufficient to overcome these local networks that have embedded themselves and were doing all that work while, while class politics was illegal Like, in a different context, those, like, corrupt local organizations would have eventually been nationalized the same way they were in the United States. I honestly don't think any podcast gets teal bucks. I would just like to say this. Because I know a lot of people say that we get funding from different sources. And I know, I'll tell you, the only funding we get is from viewers like you. It is all listener-supported. And I know that it's like people think it's absurd that that many people pay to listen to us and they think that that's fake. And I understand why, because it's crazy. I don't understand it myself, but it's true. Again, I can only know because I'm me and I have experienced it. Now they might be doing it secretly while I don't know it. But again, how can I assume that? I have to assume the world is as it's presented to me to a certain extent. So I, I I see their other podcasts. It's like, yeah, they all plausibly are getting the money realistically given their audience. Everybody is getting what they probably are getting put by audience members. There's no funding source. What there is is though, there's this parties. There are these parties. Like the whole thing that these people have been talking about is literally just a party circuit. And those parties are all sponsored by things like literary journals and cryptocurrencies or like uh start, uh web startups. And they have, you know, uh open bars, and canapes and stuff, and that's a incentive to get downtown people to come and hang out, to bring cool people in contact with people who they essentially have to hang out with if they want to get the free drinks and maybe the cocaine in the bathroom. It's essentially the way that like a rich family on the block with a nerd child would like get a pool or something, like Martin Prince, you know, get people to come over. Like you have to hang out with Moldbug if you want to have this free wine. It's just a, it's just an extended Peter Thiel funded uh, effort to get his friend Curtis some friends. That's it. Now I know that they all think that that's part of some sort of broader uh, uh, psy-op on the American public. Like this is how we're going to create, uh, we're going to how ha- we're going to complete the cycle of German idealism and 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 immunitize Trumpism by by getting key influencers on board. I know, that's what they think they're doing. At the end of the day, it's they're bored and they want to have a good time. And they want to have a good time with people who, you know, can, can bat it around, can do bants. And that's not true bluebird conservatives. It's not QAnon people. Those people are, I hate to say it, hicks. They're not dumber than anybody. They're not worse as people, although they are often bad people. But they just do not have the ability to express themselves with the liquid crispness that these kind of people, like Peter Thiel, want to be around. Because they imagine themselves as old-world aristocrats surrounded by sharp-witted courtiers. And they're trying to create that social reality. They're bringing together courtiers. The way that Louis XIV builds Versailles and all the fucking nobles have to come suck up to him. you in a place where you know everybody's paying way too much rent and they're paying like $12 for a beer at every fucking uh bar in lower manhattan a place that's going to have an open bar every like every weekend is a place to hang out and so like when their political project their political project will never be done. Like, I will say that here. The the, the fascist political project is not going to happen. Um, we're already seeing how it can fail. Like, look at Blake Masters, and you might say, oh, this is just, you know, as conditions get worse, uh, they're only going to get more, uh, more powerful. As conditions get worse, uh, the center of gravity of politics collapses, and we don't have a center to conquer. We don't have a space for all this effort to be unleashed uh, all that energy to be unleashed on. So it can't succeed as a political project. What it can do is curate a guest list for the apocalypse. And so that's what that whole scene is. It's people curating a guest list for the apocalypse. And that's fine. I don't judge it. Partly because I don't think it's some like horrifying threat Because I don't think that we're, I don't think that our conditions are being led by our political choices or our political subjectivity. We're being pulled along by currents that are far deeper than that. I mean, if we're going to be turned into jerky by by the algorithm, it is going to be under the flag of some sort of liberalized nation state until it becomes a regime of totally private-brained experience. And at that point, everyone within it is making a choice to live under those conditions. Or they're being totally dehumanized out of their opinion mattering to anybody. Have I ever met anyone with a larger head than mine? Will's head is pretty big Will's head might be a little bigger than mine We have about the same hat size though Which is like 5 and 11 eighths or something, I don't even know how the hat sizes work But we both Couldn't find hats that fit us at the Western Wear store in Houston we went to So fretting about like some tedious people writing articles and uh, and hanging out, and even running for senate. In the case of a dope like Blake Masters, uh, it's annoying. It it can cause proximate harm to specific people, but it is not a main current of anything. It is not. It doesn't need to be in, imbued with a moral dimension. Really, it can be something that you just. Decide to, like, pay attention to because it's funny to you or not pay attention to because it's boring. You're not really required to care about it, in my opinion. Was I on Mushrooms on Hassan's podcast? No. Did I seem like I was? Oh, dear. Yes, somebody says, is this the book club? We stopped talking about the book a long time ago, but we did get through the first chapter, intro and first chapter of this book. And now, next week, we'll do the next two. So two chapters next week, second and third chapter. First class passengers on a sinking ship. All right. Good talking to you guys.
0: Love you. ma.